0: Good morning, I want to talk with you a little bit today from the book of Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, first couple of verses. Uh, before I get to that part, I want to offer a word of commendation to the women here uh, for so many different things. But we kind of noticed in the last week or two, we were formulating meal lists for Clara and for I think Melody's parents. And Anita, I, gotta, I get up early. Uh, 5, four thirty, five, 6 o'clock something like that and one of these meal lists was on the, the computer and I just kind of glanced at it and by the time Anita got up at 8 or 8.30 it was full and y'all just do things like that and you may talk to each other uh, about that, that, there are so many ways that we can care for each other and it's not just all spiritual, it, it's physical as well and, and you do such a great job at that and I just wanted to to acknowledge that a little bit this morning i thank you appreciate that so much uh, several years ago nita and i went to a gospel meeting uh, to listen to the preacher and he talked about the power of positive preaching we listened to him for i guess 45 minutes and i don't remember him ever saying anything positive about preaching and i thought well i'll just do the other way i'll talk to you about the power of negative preaching And there is some power there, but what I want to speak to you more than anything else about is the balance between the two, between the negative and the positive, because God is so good about giving us everything we need, and we so desperately need to listen to Him, and I just want to talk with you for a little while about that. Society has an attitude, especially in regard to our children, and I I sympathize with society and, and their view of things like this. Uh, If our kids have ever been involved in sports, we have watched the tears in their eye as they come back from striking out in the batter's box. We sympathize with them so much because they missed the winning free throw and we lost the game. And everybody knows there are winners and losers in sporting events and anything else. And it's our kids that hurt us so much when we see the tears in their eyes as they come back from losing. And I guess most of us have been through that at one time or another. And I don't know if our tears are as much for the kids as they are for us. Our children failed. Eh, It's a ball game. You have to remind yourself of that. A Super Bowl is still just a ball game. They get paid millions of bucks for playing a game. And there are other more valuably, valuable people in society, and I don't want to talk to them about that. Uh, th- that's not a bad thing for us to feel this way about our kids. We-, we want them to do well. And we compliment them, and we want this positive reinforcement to everything that they do. But it's not all about the positives in life. We want things for- to be better for them than they were for us. And I think most of us feel that way. They shouldn't have to suffer like I did. I wonder we move to... Coleman when I was in the seventh grade and I'd been a spoiled little kid Uh, dad was in the army and he did fairly well monetarily and um, my Saturday morning was sleep till noon and get up and eat a bite of lunch and go to the movie Saturday afternoon and we moved here and he bought a farm and we didn't do well and we got up at six o'clock every morning of the year because the cows had to be milked, and the hogs had to be fed, and on and on and on it went. And I, I really wonder if he didn't move back here to put me through the same thing he went through to make me a man, and I'd I, I really think that. He did that for my benefit, and I didn't think it was for my benefit, but now I do. But most of us are that way. I've told my kids through the years, I expect you to be better than I am. Because you had a better dad than I did, and they didn't have a better dad than I did. We want things to be better for our kids. And I'll just suggest to you that my job is, as they grow older, to stand behind them and not in front of them. I sympathize with the teachers that somebody is going to call and complain to you every day of the year because you didn't treat their kids right and they're so mad at you and you have to go through all of this stuff and it's not my job. My job is to stand behind them if they make mistakes, to help them overcome those things, to lift them up in life, to, to put them back on the right road. It's not to stand in front of them and let all those things hit me first. The kids ought to bear the brunt of discipline for themselves and they don't always. But I will suggest to you that life will teach them if we don't. So our job is to do things like that. This attitude of the world has an effect on us here in the church. We don't want anything negative. We want you to be built up. And I'd like to build people up. I'd like to tell you the truth of God's Word. And I'd love for you to see the grace and the glory that's in there. But there's another side to that coin as well. Most of the time in, in, in society today, sins are defined subjectively. There's always a reason for this. And I suggest to you that the reasons are, are sometimes valid and, and sometimes not. Uh, Thou shall not steal one of the Ten Commandments. What people steal because they're poor. And that's not right. People steal because they want something. I see the, the looters on TV running out of the store with jewelry in their hand or... A TV screen that they can barely carry, and I think that's not going to feed their family. That's not because anybody's poor. They do it because they're uneducated. There was a big movement back in the 1800s to educate people. They need public education. They need to learn and learn and learn so that they can be better and better and be able to provide all of these things for their family if they want to. It's not the Ignorant people. It's not the poor people that are the dangers in the world. It's every one of us. There, there's always a reason for sin, and there's not. And I want to remind you of the Book of Genesis, the third chapter. Adam and Eve have done wrong, and God comes down. And I love the thought here. He comes down to visit with them in the cool of the evening. I just envision the Garden of Eden as being a kind of a spring, summertime. And in the, in the evening it gets cool and God wants to come down and visit with Adam and Eve and, and talk to them about the day that they've had and, and what they've accomplished and things like that and Adam is hiding himself and God calls out for him where are you and Adam says well I'm over here and I was hiding from you because I'm, I'm naked and I, I was embarrassed and God didn't say to him why God said to him did you eat The fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And that's a yes or no question. It's just yes or yeah, I I ate it. Why? God didn't ask him why. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You did something wrong. And at that time, I don't know that there was a remedy for that wrong. As they exit the garden, they'll learn sacrifice and things like that. Did you do this? And I look at the rules that God's laid down for every one of us. And I think, I don't need an excuse for why I broke that rule. I need to not break it. And that's hard for us to to come to grips with. In the book of Genesis, the fourth chapter, I kind of want to read this with you. Uh, This is outside the Garden of Eden. And it's the event of Cain killing Abel chapter 4 verse 7 God says to him verse 6 then the Lord said to Cain why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen I kind of get the idea that the countenance fallen here means that he looked at his face and it's upset and and God knows that it's upset and he says Cain told Abel uh, uh, verse 7 if you do well will not your countenance be lifted up If we do things well in this life, don't we want to smile and we explain to you what I did that was right? If if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you and you must master it. When you do wrong, when I do wrong, when we violate the will of God, it's like sin is like a wild animal sitting outside our door and we step through the door and it's going to attack us. I had something on the internet the other day. uh, The Darwin Awards that are given out for people for doing stupid stuff. This guy didn't have the money to get into the zoo so he climbed the fence and jumped over and landed in the tiger's enclosure and three of them killed him. And that's what I get from this. If I do wrong, sin is crouched outside my door and it's going to attack. And I need to be careful not to be in that situation. And this is the impact, I think, that the attitude of the world has on the church. We look at sin as, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big a deal. God will overlook it. And God doesn't always overlook it. The result here can be a body of people that's growing numerically, but spiritually they're just separated from God. Negative preaching can have a positive impact. I mean, when you look at the Ten Commandments, God starts out in a positive fashion. You'll have no other gods before me. Now, He's not saying, don't want you to worship idols. He's just saying, I won't take second place to anybody. You'll not make to you any graven image. Well, that's just a statement. Don't do this. Honor my name. Don't use it lightly in a vain fashion. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. These are all more or less positive statements. And then he comes to the other side of the coin and he says, but you better not commit adultery. But you better not steal. You better not commit murder. Don't do that. And we understand that the penalty for violating any of the positive or the negative commands of God is death. Don't do these things. Because they're punishment that awaits us. And I want us to be aware that God wants good for us. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self control. These are the things that God wants for us. And if we've got the Spirit of God governing our lives and leading and guiding us, we'll understand this. I want you to love one another. I want you to have peace with one another. I, I want all of these good things for you. But he's already said in verse 19 of the same chapter, before he ever gets to the positive, he said, now, but the fruit of the, the, the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lascivious idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, wrath, factions. These, these are the things that will destroy you. And before he said that, he suggested to us that there is a battle that goes on in every one of us. Because we have flesh. And we have a spirit. And the battle rages within us. Because my body wants to do this, but my spirit says that's wrong. Don't do it. And when you look at that list of sins first two or three are enticing, titillating, if you will. But that's not the primary attitude I get from that reading of the list of sins because when you come down into it, I I, I want there to be no wrath. I want there to be no divisions, no parties, no envies. These are the common sins of people. I mean, we're not bad about murdering each other. But we're bad about being separated from others that we may be sitting beside. Boundaries that we place there artificially don't do any of that. Because these things will cause you to be lost eternally. And the good things will cause you to be saved eternally. And I look at that list and I think, well, the first part, I wouldn't want to live in a world that's governed by... Adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lasciviousness and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and wrath and divisions and partyings and, and such like. That's a terrible world. That's the world of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to be, live I want to live in a world that's filled with love and joy and peace and long suffering and kindness. And these are the things that God's provided for us if we will. His word gives us information and power. And we need to understand that. The negatives produce positive results in us if we'll listen to it. Bad grades have never been good. I got a bad grade once in a civics class, I guess, whatever you had in the 11th or 12th grade. It's the teacher's fault. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was the principal's fault. The teacher was a good man. I want to stress that too. He was as good a man as I ever met. But he could not keep order in the classroom. And I don't know, somehow the principal got news of that. And he's teaching the class. And the principal is outside the school building looking through the window. We didn't see him. He told us about that. And he saw everybody in the class... Talking or sleeping? Well, the class was easy. I mean, you could read the, the bold print in the book and make an A. And I always made A's in that class. But the principal came to the door and he said, every one of you kids is guilty of either talking or sleeping, and everybody in here is going to get a one grade lower than you normally would have gotten. So instead of getting an A in that class, I got a B in that class. And it wasn't my fault. I had an A. And I wasn't talking loud. I was just talking like everybody else was. Being very respectful of the teacher. And I gave the report card to my dad when it came. And I didn't get another B in that class. I got A's in that class because I'm more afraid of my dad than I got joy out of talking. It came to a positive result later. And I think it's the same thing with reviews that you may get at work. I got one or two bad reviews at work because the boss was dumb. He didn't have enough sense to know That you don't work the first 10 minutes you come in. You visit with the other guys you're working with. And he had something that he wanted done. And I didn't want to do it. I paid the price for that. I was rewarded later because I was a good worker. But here are these things. Criticism demoralizes for the moment. But eventually we learn. And we learn because we've made mistakes and it's the whole attitude of growing up we're going to make mistakes and we're going to learn from those mistakes not to do them again it can awaken us to do better now there are negatives in the Bible and I've talked with you about Adam and Eve already I, I kind of like this attitude that Paul expresses in Acts 20 chapter verse 7 he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he calls them up to meet him in Belize and he says now I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God everything that's in the Bible the good The positive rules, the regulations that He wants for us, and the negative that's there as well. I've I've given you everything you need to know, and we need to understand that. When we forget God's balance between good and evil, do this, don't do that. When we focus merely on the good, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the long-sufferingness of God, Or when we focus all on the negative, hell is there. And you're like a spider suspended over hell by a a silk thread and God stands ready to cut that so you're going to be lost. That's not the balance of God. It's not totally one way or the other. God is merciful and God is gracious and God is forgiving. But He also holds us accountable for the things we do in life. And we need that balance so much. I want to share with you a couple of ideas in the Bible in the book of Job Job chapter 5 I want to read with you verse 17 and 18 and it shows this balance behold how happy is the man whom God reproves so that he so do not despise the discipline of the almighty for he inflicts pain and he also gives relief he wounds but he also heals God does these things for us. In the book of Jeremiah, the 36th chapter, and I'm not going to read this with you, I do, I do kind of want to recount what's going on in Jeremiah 37. rather. Uh, no, it is 36. In the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, now the, the kings of Judah back in those days Starts out with Josiah when Jeremiah begins to prophesy. And then we go kind of quickly through Jehoahaz. He's not on the throne for a long time. And then Jehoiakim comes to the throne. And Jeremiah has been expelled from the temple. He's not allowed to go in there by the king's decree. And so he calls Barak his secretary, his scribe. And he says, now write down all of these things that I'm going to say to you. And Barak does. He takes the dictation and writes down the law of God. And Jeremiah says to him, Since I can't go into the temple, I want you to go and I want you to read these words before the king. And he does. Now there's another prophet named Micaiah, who is a false prophet. And Micaiah writes down the words that he wants to speak as well and has them read in there. Anyway, in verse 20 through 26, Uh, the scroll that Jeremiah has dictated to Baruch, the king cuts it up with a pair of scissors, a penknife, and burns it in a brazier. I won't listen to God. I will burn His Word. And that's what he does. The good that God speaks, the bad that God speaks, I won't put up with the bad. I will burn it and just pretend that it never happened And Jeremiah causes this word to be written again and carried into the presence of the king and given to him. And in this passage, toward the end of the chapter, verse 30, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David. His dead body shall be cast out into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. He won't be buried. He's going to be left out there to rot because he burned the Word of God. We dare not do that. You and I have to listen to the Word of God. I, I just love this passage in Hebrews, the 12th chapter that uh, Ronnie read the first couple of verses of a few minutes ago. Uh, the, the next part talks about what child of you who has a father who has not received discipline from that father. i told you, I was kind of scared of my dad. I guess I was 18 or 19, left home, when it occurred to me I didn't need to be that afraid of him because he wasn't going to kill me. And I thought several times, he's going to kill me for this. He'll kill me for this. And he didn't. And it's not because he hated me or loved me. It's because he wanted me to do better. And I bore the discipline of my Father for good. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in that passage. I want to share with you what I feel to be the heart of God's message to us. In the book of Titus. Chapter 2. Verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God. If you've read the New Testament, you understand something of the graciousness of God. He gives us what we don't deserve, a hope of heaven. But grace is not just God saying, come on up here and be with me. It says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, but it also brings instruction. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. That's what God wants for us. Not just to think of His glory, but to think to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And here is the balance of God's Word to instruct us. And we kind of started out with this, the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy, I want you to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and patience. You can't make people do right, but you can teach them. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And those are great words. And we need them today as much as we ever have. We'll be led in prayer at this time.